It's fake Andy Warhol's 15 minutes in theory. Episode 5 Individual versus Collective Insanity. Batman and the City. You are the new American society, the movers and the shakers. You are the new coffee generation. Because coffee is the calm moment that lets you think. Coffee gives you the time to dream it and the vitality to do it. No other drink does that like coffee. Join the coffee achievers. I am currently operating under an additional handicap. I've had problems with my left eye in the last week, and uh, because of that, I'm not wearing my contact lens in that eye. So I have one contact lens in, and uh, whenever my vision is screwed up like this, it affects my psychology, it affects how I feel. And uh, I feel like I'm in a brain fog. Now, um, you might ask why I don't just put my glasses on. Because when I have my glasses on, even though I can see well, um, the lenses and my glasses, the prescription's up to date. But when I have my glasses on, I feel like I'm high. I feel like I'm high on marijuana. I don't need to smoke marijuana anymore because... For the last 12 years or so, whenever I put my glasses on, um, instantly I feel as though I've been smoking marijuana for some reason. It's not the prescription. I, I tell this to people and they say, you need to update the prescription on the lenses. It's, it's not that. It's not that. I don't know why. I think, I think the actual glasses, the frames of the glasses have some sort of hex put on them. Or maybe it's some sort of blessing like a... Um, someone put a hex on them, but they thought it would be a blessing for me, but it's not a blessing. It's a, it's a curse. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I don't have my contact in my left eye because if I put it in, it would irritate the eye further. And, uh, I'm living in Siberia now and, um, I don't even know where the nearest eye doctor is. I've had problems that feel kind of like this current problem. And the last time I had it, which was like two years ago, uh, I, I almost lost sight in my left eye. But if I take it easy, I think, um, I think I will be okay. So anyway, this episode is going to be extremely long probably because I have six pages of notes that I printed out. And these are not even, this is not even everything that I wanted to talk about. And the problem is that I got an idea and the idea expanded into multiple topics, 
and the topics became interlinked, interlinked too many times, and there's no straightforward linear way for me to go over all of these ideas. So I'm just going to have to do the best that I can. And there are themes, there are prevailing themes, but I, I just, this is the window that I have to record this. Like I say, I'm in Siberia. And the problem here is that there are men who come around the camp I'm in on snowmobiles and they insist on circling the camp. They race back and forth. They race around like it's a NASCAR track. They make a constant left-hand turn for hundreds of turns, and this could happen at any time. But I have it. I, um, I talked to the council, and they said that I would have a three-hour window where the snowmobile men, they call themselves the Cassocks, they're not going to circle the camp. It's 30 degrees below zero. Also, another thing that may happen, which happened last time, which you probably heard, was that at a certain point, the cat that lives here, um, she likes to meow, and nothing stops her. So that may happen at some point. Now, the topic I wanted to get into uh, in this episode was going to be Batman, and it was going to be comparing two different runs of Batman comic books. One written by Grant Morrison, and one written by a man named Scott Snyder. And um, I may do that, but the idea of comparing those two comic book runs, which the Grant Morrison run was from approximately 2006 to 2011, and the Scott Snyder run was approximately 2011 to 2016, uh, the idea of comparing them would not be as interesting as the ideas that sort of spun out of the comparison that I was making. And the major idea was individual insanity versus collective insanity. And this idea came about because when you think about Gotham City, often people have said, oh, in order to do, in order to do what he's doing, Bruce Wayne must have gone insane uh, he's as crazy as the supervillains that he fights when he puts on the Batman suit. But people have also said, in order to continue living in Gotham City, you'd have to be crazy. You'd have to be crazy to live in Gotham City, and you'd have to be crazy in a different way, in an individualistic way, to be a crime fighter or a super criminal within Gotham City. And you can expand the metaphor outwards to say that Gotham City stands for any city or any modern urban area. And uh, the individual insanity would be uh, individual crackpots or individually um, criminally insane elite people. We will get into comparisons like this, but that was the idea that I had that spun off into all sorts of different things, which we'll get to. But the collective insanity idea does not just have to go with an individual city. It does not have to go with um, the overall idea of the modern city. It can also stand as a metaphor for the technological civilization itself, the modern West itself, living in the world today. It can stand for that. There is a collective insanity about all of this. 
That's not a radical statement. Lots of people have said in a colloquial sense or in a somewhat clinical sense that uh, the existence in the modern world is insane, that uh, you don't even need to point to the escalating rise in mental health problems, although there's that too. Uh, you don't need to point to those things, but there's a sense that this is true and almost everyone feels that. Now, all of this is predicated on a quote that has meant a lot to me. And the quote is from Brave New World Revisited, uh, which is a collection of essays uh, that were made into a very short, I think it's less than 100 pages, a very short book, also written by Aldous Huxley, who wrote the original Brave New World. And I, I recommend Brave New World revisited even more than Brave New World. And what Huxley says in one of the essays is this. Individual insanity is immune to the consequences of collective insanity. That is a quote that has resonated with me. And I think that's one of the great explanatory sentences of the post-war, post-World War II era. I'll read it once again. Individual insanity is immune to the consequences of collective insanity. The modern world is full of insane people. The average person, the normie, is under a sort of collective insanity to go along with this and to continue going along with increasingly unrewarding, increasingly inhuman conditions overall. That's not to say that certain reforms haven't been made over the last, whatever, hundred years. Of course they have. That's not to say that everyone's life is always shit. But overall, we see what the trajectory is. More and more people are unhappy. The more, quote unquote, civilized you are, the more unhappy you are on average. So we see that. I don't think I need to work hard to establish that idea. I'm not saying it in a strictly clinical sense, but you can fall back on the rising rates of mental illness in order to prove that, yes, there is a collective insanity. It is rising. I think recently, what was the term that became um, hugely popular like three weeks ago? Um, someone had a term that they were using to describe the hysteria over COVID. And I don't quite agree with that, whatever that term was. I know everyone knows this term. I'm just, I forget what it was. But the reason why I slightly disagreed with the term being used for the present moment was because this collective insanity is nothing new. It's the modern condition almost. There's actually a few passages in Brave New World Revisited that say things along the lines of, quote, the really hopeless victims of mental illness are to be found among those who appear to be the most normal. And if they were fully human beings, they ought not to be adjusted to the modern world. So they knew this back then. And again, this is the brother of the head of UNESCO writing this. I don't know exactly when the essays were written that were collected in Brave New World Revisited, but approximately 1950 was when Aldous Huxley wrote that. Now, I want to briefly, just out of curiosity, um, just for a point of reference that you may find interesting, 
there is a similar concept that Sigmund Freud wrote about in his book, uh, which is also basically like a long essay, The Future of an Illusion, which that book is about the illusion in question is religion. Freud was basically opposed to religion and he saw it as collective insanity in its, in its own right. So this is what Sigmund Freud wrote. And this is a longer quote. This is about two sentences long and it's they're long sentences. But at the end of it, you'll see what I'm talking about. All of these quotes and excerpts, if you want to read them, will be on fakeandywarhol.substack.com. So Freud writes, It has been repeatedly pointed out by myself and in particular by Theodore Reich in how great detail the analogy between religion and obsessional neuroses can be followed out and how many of the peculiarities and vicissitudes in the formation of religion can be understood in that light. And it tallies well with this that the devout believers are safeguarded in a high degree against the risk of certain neurotic illnesses. Their acceptance of the universal neurosis spares them the task of constructing a personal one. End quote. Now, in reading that, I remembered what the term was. It's um, mass formation psychosis was the recent term. And I don't think it's a psychosis going on as much as I think it is more a pathology. But that's a, that's a bit of a sidetrack. So what Freud is saying is that the devout believers in a religion, which he says is a mental illness of a sort, they have a universal neurosis of the religion itself. So they don't have to go insane in their own particular ways. Now, there's many qualifications and equivocations I could put along these ideas. I'm not going to go in depth in all of that because I want to get to talking about Bruce Wayne and the Joker and Batman and Gotham City. So I what I will because that's whatever that's what that's the real important thing to talk about, not this stuff. So, but what I will say is that these ideas can leave one feeling like. Okay, well then what is sanity? Where is mental health? Where is sanity? What is what even is sanity? What is mental health? Who is mentally healthy? If you're saying you can only go collectively insane or individualistically insane in your own individual way, where can you find mental health? Where are the sane people? And I have I wrote this somewhere. I don't remember what book it was in. But I toyed with this idea that what is the root word of sane? What is the root concept? Health. How can you be healthy in an insane environment? If the environment itself is insane, if the technological system that we're in is out of control, is increasingly artificial, is unstable, then there is no sanity. There can be no real strict definition of what a sane person is because the ones who feel and often seem the most sane are the ones who will instantly go along with whatever changes happen in the system. But the system itself is changing in usually increasingly inhuman ways. So there's a paradox there that doesn't make sense and obviously it results in people becoming really overwhelmed. 
the people that are hip on everything, the people that snap to the program often, the people who are always up on what the latest trends are and who almost instantly know um, what is no longer politically correct to say or think, those people, uh, in a sense, they might seem sane in the corporation or something, but we all know that people who are like really invested in being up to date, they often have mental problems too because it wears them out to keep up with uh, the latest updates. So I just wanted to put out the idea that this is a relative thing that we're talking about various sorts of insanity and varying degrees of mental unhealth. And um, these are not exact sciences, obviously, but that's a backdrop that we need to think about because all of this information, all these ideas could be criticized if someone should just say, okay, well then what is your definition of mental health? Yeah, and it would be well a person who is, you know, able to deal with the world and who seems relatively calm and blah, blah, blah. Well, how can that be when the world is always in crisis? And we're going to get to how that's a parallel to Gotham City always being in crisis. The modern world is we lurch from crisis to crisis, as does Gotham City lurch from crisis to crisis when in every new issue of the comic book, in every new episode of the TV show, in every new film, here's a villain. This is the villain of the week. Well, in the modern world, it's the crisis of the year and the crises overlap. And this crisis is subsiding. The pandemic's subsiding, but here comes the climate crisis and we might get another financial crisis. And all of that is paralleled when here comes the Joker. Oh, the Joker has been gone away. Here comes... Scarecrow. Oh, the Scarecrow went away. Here's here's the Joker again. Hey, didn't we have a financial crisis 10 years ago? Hey, didn't we have Two-Face attacking Gotham City 10 years ago? Yeah, well, the financial crisis is back. Yeah, well, Two-Face is back. You know, I mean, this is what happens. But I wanted to go back again to Aldous Huxley briefly, and I will reread uh, the key sentence. Individual insanity is immune to the consequences of collective insanity. In other words, the way that your average Gothamite is insane for continuing to live in Gotham City, Bruce Wayne doesn't have that problem. The Joker doesn't have that problem. Uh, the Joker does not have the collective psychosis, the collective mental illness of your average Gothamite who is just prey, who is just prey who is just collateral damage. Uh, the implicit message is that you can, either be, you can either become some sort of psychopath, like a Batman or a Joker or, or a Catwoman, or you can be just your average Gothamite who might get killed randomly and who has to live in an insane world. So the way that Two-Face, for example, the way that Two-Face goes insane protects him and prevents him from living a life as your average nondescript citizen. Whether he would want to or not, he can't do it. Same with Catwoman for a less insane example, or same with you know any of Batman's allies. I mean, is uh, Dick Grayson really as obsessed or driven or insane as Bruce Wayne? Not really, but there's something about his life and there's something about the way he looks at the world same with Catwoman, that it's like, yeah, I'm not going to be your average Gothamite. I want to go into this mad, crazy world, and um, it's going to protect and prevent me from living 
as a nondescript average person who at any time could have their life played with and toyed with by uh, one maniac or another. But, in returning to Aldous Huxley's quote, I wanted to use that as an opportunity to say, I don't bring up Aldous Huxley because I think that he's like, got all the answers, or I like, have a hero worship complex of him, or I think that he's like a philosopher or a pundit who can do no wrong or anything. Uh, there's all these ideas that like, oh, well, you shouldn't follow Aldous Huxley because he was actually an insider, which, you know, to a large extent he was, and he was one of the elite himself, and you shouldn't follow. Uh, Aldous Huxley did not have good intentions for humanity. He did not write Brave New World to warn humanity about anything. No, Brave New World was what uh, Aldous Huxley wanted, and he wrote that on behalf of the New World Order, and the United Nations paid him to propagandize this and that. And um, I mean, some of that might be true, but uh, what, what I want to impress upon you is that you should not be looking at these figures as like, this is a hero, this is a villain, I shouldn't read anything this person said because they have some connection that means they're a bad person. Whereas on the other hand, this, this other person is always a hero, they're righteous. You need to uh, get on the team of this philosopher and this pundit only, and uh, these are the little heroes that you should have, and you should go through life with these as your heroes, not these other people. You should never listen to any of that. You get the impression. And... Um, I want to say that, like, I don't, um, I don't expect people who are listening to this podcast, I don't expect you to, like, agree with me on everything or even most things. I, I, I don't, I don't care. Um, I'm putting out information because I feel like putting this out and I have no care whatsoever, really, if you agree or, or not. Now, in a sense, uh, I certainly hope that you get something out of this. That's that. That is kind of why I'm doing it. But I'm not trying to make arguments that I think you need. That's the key word. Need to subscribe to. I don't think that you need to agree with me on anything. I I, I don't care. It's not going to change the world. If you get something out of this, great. But I do not expect my audience to agree with me on everything and uh sort of by the same token uh i am not going to agree with you on everything or maybe even anything if you try to like proselytize me into this political philosophy or that or liking this person or not liking these other people i'm i'm not into it i don't care i would impress upon you again not to follow philosophers or political pundits as if they were superheroes. When I went to college, there was a guy, I didn't know him, I knew of him, but he was known around the campus as the Wittgenstein guy. And um, I, I like Wittgenstein overall, that's uh, sort of a separate issue. But he became known as the Wittgenstein guy because no matter what class he was in, no matter what topic he was discussing, whether in a class or uh, at the cafeteria or wherever, his answer would always be 
Well, Wittgenstein says this. Wittgenstein says what we are talking about now. This is just a language game. And um, for all I know, this guy is now a very respected philosophy professor. I don't think he is, but he, he may be. He may have made a life of just referring to Wittgenstein all the time. But uh, I would not want to go through life as the Wittgenstein guy, and I would not really want to hear much input from people who are the equivalent of the Wittgenstein guy, whether that's the Spinoza guy or the Noam Chomsky guy or whoever. Uh, but, but that said, that's not to say that you can't get information from sources that you don't agree with all the way or even halfway. So, yeah, just do, do whatever you want with this information. But um, I just wanted to put that out there. And I also wanted to say because, you know, if I, if I had to choose one f- philosopher or thinker who I would champion, it would be, as you would probably guess if you've listened to these podcasts, the French philosopher of the mid-20th century, Jacques Ellul. And I think Jacques Ellul, who's the guy who I think coined the phrase the technological society, what he says makes a lot of sense to me when I read his books. It was almost like, oh, this is this is what I would have written if I was going to lay out my thoughts. You know, quite largely it is. But in his book, uh, The Technological Society, which was written, I don't know, uh, 1960-ish, towards the end of that book, he says he says this, by the year 2000, voyages to the moon will be commonplace. All food will be completely synthetic and disease will have been eliminated. That's Jacques Ellul. And I cannot think of more absurd, incorrect statements or predictions than those. By the year 2000, voyages to the moon will be commonplace. No, all food will be completely synthetic. Now, when he wrote that, I think circa 1960, Uh, We didn't have junk food as much, and by the year 2000, junk food and processed food was, and GMO food, it's much more common. But no matter how you try to square that sentence, no. All food will be completely synthetic, no. And lastly, which is, you know, the, the most laughable of all, disease will have been eliminated. So what I'm saying here is that even Jacques Ellul, Jacques Ellul, who I, if I have to pick one guy, I'm, I'm picking him. I'm aware of absurd statements that Jacques Ellul makes. And I like Jacques Ellul. And that's not, those are not the only uh, things that Jacques Ellul wrote that I disagree with. I mean, uh, just, just his idea of basically, he thought that he could convince people to come to a better collective relationship with technology. And I think that he was far too optimistic in, in that. So Jacques Ellul has major flaws. So what I'm saying here is that even people that I like, I recognize that they have major flaws. Now, I'm, I'm saying all this because I've been getting, I've gotten feedback. And most of the feedback that I get is really good. But I've gotten some feedback that I don't want to have like debates over much. Okay, it's, it's not really worth my time. And I don't think it's worth your time. I don't think that it's going to, it would be useful And yet I get messages from people and in particular, I'm going to talk about one individual who has been constantly trying to get me to pay attention to him. 
this is a person from the fake gang sphere. Uh, this is a new, a relatively new account. So the the, the username it's it's fake, and then there will be like a a real person's name afterwards, and the person behind the account in some sense pretends to be that person, like I'm fake Andy Warhol. Uh, this person, this account is probably like, I don't know, six months old. And when they began the account, they interacted with me. And uh, I said to them, you should word the memes that you're making in order for them to sound more like the voice of the person you're pretending to be. I'm, I'm not going to say who this person is pretending to be, but they're fake blank blank. And um, the celebrity that they're trying to be has a very distinct way of talking. And yet the memes that this guy puts put out uh, do not sound like the person at, at all. So I said that and the person got extremely offended for some reason. And um, in the last six months, the guy constantly comments under my memes. I've restricted him, you know, constantly trying to needle me and, and, and all this. He hasn't said anything like too mean, but it's just like, you know, whenever I get an alert that he's uh, made a comment, it's like, oh, the baby wants attention. Uh, and I, I, I never went back and forth with him. And in the last six months, he's only amassed like 100 followers. So he didn't take my advice and his account didn't get anywhere. Now, this is all like small ball bullshit, but I, I promise you that there's a point that I'm driving at. So a few weeks ago, I made a meme. It's a top and bottom soy jack meme where the top meme is complaining about Hollywood remakes, doing nothing but sequels and other remakes of existing properties. And in the top half of the meme, the guy looking at the movie posters for the new Matrix and the new Spider-Man and the new Ghostbusters is like, oh, Hollywood has no creativity. They just do a remake with slight changes. And the bottom half of the meme is the same Wojak, Soyjak going goo goo gaga orgasm scream face over American Psycho and Blade Runner 2049 memes. The joke is that the meme sphere remakes American Psycho memes constantly and to a slightly lesser degree Blade Runner 2049 memes just using the same images over and over again with, with slight changes. So the memes themselves are remakes of the same films. That was the meme. It's a ha-ha meme. There's some slight subversiveness because it's a meme that's kind of taking a shot at meme culture in the meme. And uh, I thought it was cute. I got a few people sending me private messages saying, you know what you could have done? You could have put a copy of the whole meme in the bottom half of the meme because the meme that you've made, the meme, the meme that I've made there itself has a lot of remake memes in it and is itself a remake of memes. And to be honest with you, yeah, I, I thought about doing that. It, cro it did cross my mind and I decided that that was a little too busy. That was a little too complicated. So I decided not to do it. But I got a few people sending me messages with that idea Every time they did, I wrote back, you know, something like, ha ha, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, this um, fake blank blank guy also wrote that to me. 
I looked at it as, okay, perhaps this guy is okay. Perhaps I can enter into the lightest of conversations with him of one or two exchanges. And this guy who stalks my page, basically, I can make things okay. So he wrote to me, hey, you know, could have made this meme. You could have made this meme more meta. Say that three times fast. You could have made this meme more meta. You could have made this meme more by putting a copy of the meme itself in, in the lower half of the meme. And I wrote back, yeah, that would have been nice. It kind of crossed my mind. And he writes back something like, yeah, well, I think all these memes are sort of like intellectual dead ends. And uh, I'm sick of seeing these people doing the same films over and over again. And even criticism of this stuff still uses the same stuff. And he said something like that. And I wrote back like, yeah, I've been kind of ambivalent about memes too. I, I know where you're coming from. And uh, yeah, to be honest, I almost didn't use the Wojaks in this meme. Because he said something about how um, the Wojak itself is dehumanizing. Which is an idea that I've also said, and I'm sure a lot of other people have said that too. So he, he writes that to me, and I, I, I wrote back again. I said, yeah, I, I almost didn't put it out, but it seemed like people liked it, so whatever. And then uh, he responds with an audio file. The audio file is like 10 seconds long, and it's like 8 seconds of silence. And then at the end, he says, yeah, but you still made it. In other words, like, yeah, I understand these criticisms of meme culture, but I still did something wrong because I put the meme out. And, uh, I mean, like I say, I've been critical of, of memes and I've been critical of, of other things like films and stuff like that, the art of film. But I'm not, like, religiously assholian about forbading anyone and everyone from consuming these cultural products. We have these ideas and we have what we want and what we think is good and what we think is bad, but we still have to live in the world. And that's not being hypocritical unless, unless I said I'm not going to ever consume memes or watch television because they're evil. But then I went on to do so. That would be hypocritical. Like if I was an advocate for like not using the internet at all, but still used it, the, you know, that would be hypocrisy. I, I do think that memes have shortcomings. I do think that people watch too much television. But, I mean, the, the world is not going to be saved by an effort to get people to not consume. Maybe individuals can have their lives improved. And I think my life has definitely been improved by refraining from headlong media consumption and meme consumption. Because I think after a while, even comedy memes they become depressing. But having said all of that, I put forth that example to show like the kinds of interactions that don't lead anywhere. Also, when that person sent that audio message to me, I didn't reply anything. Because the other thing I want to impart to you is that when you enter into these internet arguments, or if you were to, you have like almost a 0% chance of convincing the other person. Like no matter what I said to fake blank blank, that person is going to walk away from the conversation thinking that they're right. And really in terms of what I have control over, 
the only control I might have is what degree do I want the other person to dislike me and be obsessed with me. Now, if someone is already like basically softcore stalking you, you probably should not get into like a pointless argument about memes. And if the person is trying to like bait you into a pointless argument, you should not engage. I want to now open this conversation up, this one-way conversation up, uh, into talking about the moment that we're in now. It's no coincidence that this person who has been like trying to needle me for six months, that this is the time when this person like tries a little harder and he's not the only one. And what I've seen in the last month basically is that I don't think it's just me, but it really seems like more and more people around me are like reaching, if not a breaking point, like a new threshold of whatever kind of mania they've been going into. Because I've seen a lot of weird uh, sort of breakdowns. And for me personally, and I think for uh, the major countries that I know of, that most of these people that that I know of are in, it isn't as though the pandemic has been a lot worse. It isn't as though the media environment has been a lot worse, the news environment. Yes, in a lot of places, COVID cases in the last month reached all-time highs, with most of the cases not being serious, being less severe than ever. But despite that, I think that the environment of the media, of the mainstream media, of the news itself, um, does not seem to be as hysterical as it was a year ago or a year and a half ago. So it's not that. I think that it's just the wear of the current crisis that for whatever reason, a lot of people are reaching some sort of breaking point. And maybe that's why, as I am currently hearing that certain countries are lifting restrictions, perhaps somewhere in the data, somewhere in the mass psychology collection, somewhere in the halls of the Pentagon or the Tavistock Institute or wherever, or the reptilians under the earth. Somewhere, someone has said, we need to ease up immediately because people are reaching, people are going to reach breaking points that they don't even understand. And I don't understand what the breaking points are, but it seems like a lot of people have been reaching them. I've seen a lot of freakouts. I've overheard them. I've had other people tell me about them. Despite the political situation not being as shrill or hysterical as usual. Now, to give two more examples of things that can happen in the rapport or the transference between a content creator or a voice or a radio host and uh, his audience, I'm going to reference two instances, two anecdotes from the past uh, from people that I've been involved with. The first was a guy who had 
I think he still has it, an internet radio show. Very unique show. I'm not going to say what it is, but very unique show, very unique takes, very unique person. The guy lives in Florida, so there you go. That's all you need to know. I did tech work for him in the slightest sense possible. And uh, this is a guy who supposedly lived around the world, supposedly lived in lots of different countries. And one aspect of living in other countries that he liked, he said, was that other countries in their bathrooms, they have bidets. And if you don't know what a bidet is, it's like a little toilet, but it squirts water up your ass so you can clean yourself there. And this guy, he really liked that. And he, uh, he impressed upon his audience that people who did not use bidets are basically unclean, which is kind of true that most people, that more people than you might want to think about are walking around with um, unclean rears because dry toilet paper does not really do the best job of cleaning. So this radio host, we'll call him Florida Guy. Florida Guy mentioned this to his audience and Florida Guy said, yeah, um, so when I got back to the States, I took it upon myself to connect a hose to the water pipe in my bathroom so that I would be able to use a hose to um, clean myself after I made a bowel movement. And he went into this somewhat detailed step-by-step how-to guide, DIY guide of, okay, here's what you need. You need a hose. It could be like a garden hose, or it could be like the little hose nozzle that's on the sink even. And you got to attach it to this and attach it to the pipes and blah, blah, blah. He said that as a segment in his radio show. And from that point on, he just assumed that everyone that continued to listen to his show would have taken it upon themselves to do that. Because otherwise, you'd be like a bunch of unclean subhumans with uh, dirty assholes. And I can relate this to Warhol because uh, Warhol was known to have been seen wearing dirty underwear. In Warhol Chris Chan, I make a comparison between the eyewitness accounts of Warhol wearing dirty underwear. And Warhol also put dirty underwear in his time capsules for museum catalogers to find. I make a parallel between that and the famous Chris Chan dirty crapped briefs instance. But anyway, so Florida guy assumes from that point on that, well, if you're still listening to my show, you, you must have done that, right? And uh, this came into conflict with some of his audience, uh, the people that wrote to him and the people that called in. Um, every now and then when a poop joke would come up, or he would notice, like, anal symbolism in Hollywood movies, which is a whole other topic. 
whenever something like that would come up in a conversation, sometimes he would make like an offhand remark about, oh, aren't you glad that I told you how to properly uh, go to the bathroom? Because most people in North America do not know how to clean themselves. Right, guys? And if he was talking to someone, if he had someone on the show, then the other person would like usually sort of chuckle. And then they would say, oh, yeah, I mean, that sounds great, but uh, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes they'd say something like, yeah, well, I mean, I just use like uh, wet wipes or something like that. And he would, this radio host, Florida guy, would uh, get upset because he expected his audience to like march with him in lockstep. That goes back to what I was saying earlier, that I don't, I don't care if you uh, agree with me. I don't have a hard line in the terms of, I'm still going to want to communicate with you if you want to be communicated to, whether you agree with me or not. Now, the second example I have, uh, I'm actually going to name this person because I've cited this person. I cited it in, in my book, in my most recent book, John Adams. His name is John Adams. He used to do a podcast or a series of podcasts, and I don't think he does it anymore. And I knew him somewhat. I exchanged emails, and I talked to him a few times. And um, John Adams stopped podcasting, I don't know, five years ago or three years ago or something, because of the anecdote that I'm about to relate to you. He was talking about someone that he knew, the usual topics of John Adams' podcasts, they were along the lines of like fake news, the news is lying to you, there are machinations at work. Uh, He talked about Bertrand Russell. He talked about Aldous Huxley. He talked about all that sort of stuff. And he talked about false flags, but he made the mistake one time of talking about someone that he knew that died. Now, I don't, I don't remember the exact specifics, but the gist of it was something along the lines of, yeah, so there's this news article, and it's about um, this friend I knew that recently died, and uh, here's what it says. It says that Eve Adams, aged 33, was killed on November the 22nd at 3.33 a.m. traveling on Route 66 outside of Phoenix, Arizona. Now, I'm making a lot of that up, but I do know that the 33 number was in there. But the point of it was that here's a news article that's full of all sort of like occult, pseudo-occult numerology, like the number 33, which is like a Masonic number, and November the 22nd, which is like 11 and 22, which was the day JFK was shot, and Phoenix, Arizona. Well, the Phoenix, that's a mythological being symbolizing rebirth, and Route 66, which is two 33s, and 
the time of death or the time of the accident was at 3.33 in the morning. And the, the point that John Adams was making was that, look, if I just saw this article and I didn't know this person, then I would think this is fake. This person's name is Eve Adams. I, I don't think the person's real name was Eve Adams. I'm just thinking up something like it. The person's name was Eve Adams. It's in Phoenix, which has symbolism to it. There's all sorts of like 33s. This is a fake news article. Who knows where this came from? Someone high up in the fake news organization as a joke put this out. But John Adams knew this person and had personal connections to her. And he could say, yeah, all of this is true. If I saw this article, I wouldn't believe it was true. But it is. And sometimes coincidences like this happen. So in an offhand way, John Adams put that out there. And what happened was that the more suspicious people in John Adams listening audience, they heard that and they said, well, you're a disinformation agent, John Adams, because this is fucking obviously fake news and it's got occult symbolism all over it. So they went crazy and they started accusing him of being a secret agent. It got so bad. I think people were like calling his house and stuff that his wife like gave him an ultimatum, um, get off the internet <laughs> or I'm out of here. So uh, <laughs> that's something else that can happen when you interact with people who are sort of individually unhinged. Now, all of, the, all of those people in John Adams' listening audience, they would look at the masses. They would look at the mainstream and they would say, People today are crazy. They're brainwashed by the mainstream news. We're the people who are awake. And yet within that awake group, because every single one of them is kind of awake in their own way or a little nuts in their own way, some of them were certainly triggered by what John Adams was saying. Now, I myself, like I said earlier, I've been accused of being a secret agent or, you know, part of the New World Order, not frequently, but repeatedly. And I'll give you a few examples of that. Now, one of the books that I wrote, I think I wrote it like almost 10 years ago. And in some ways, it was kind of the precursor to Warhol Chris Channel, though I didn't intend it to be. I didn't know that I was going to, you know, write Warhol Chris Channel 10 years ago. But it was a book that compared the writer James Joyce to a political activist slash conspiracy theorist slash cult leader named Glenn Keeley. Now, Glenn Keeley was a brilliant guy, was an innocent guy. I've got no bad vibes to shoot Glenn Keeley's way. Glenn Keeley is a whole subject matter. I could talk for hours about Glenn Keeley. The gist of it is that Glenn Keeley thought that there was a secret code in the English language. And 
he thought that there were hidden truths to be found by splitting up words, by looking at different letter combinations. And there's a parallel between the way Glenn Keeley spliced up and rearranged language for profound mythological effect and the way James Joyce did it in Finnegan's Wake. So I wrote a short book. It's got to be less than 100 pages. I, I, I only have it up as an ebook. I've been meaning to revise it and put it out as a physical book for a long time, but maybe at some point I'll do that. Now, I say that Glenn Keeley, who actually passed away in late 2019, I say that he was a cult leader because I think that's an accurate description. And yet, Glenn Keeley was a nice guy. I never interacted with him. He seemed like a nice guy, harmless. And I think that the people around him who believed and I think continue to believe in the ideas that Glenn Keeley thought he saw in the English language, I think they're all nice people from what I've seen. And I would also say that some of Glenn Keeley's ideas, some of what he thought he saw by reading the codes, uh, I think the ideas that he had, I think the conclusions that he reached, I think that, first of all, they're brilliantly creative. But I would also say that there are some truths in a metaphorical sense in what he saw. But that's, that's a whole other subject. The point is that when I put out the book on Glenn Keeley, obviously written from the point of view that I don't believe that the codes are really there, even though I think a lot of his political ideas and criticisms of uh, the establishment, let's say, I think they're righteous criticisms. I don't believe that the mythology that Keeley constructed which involved a race of Neanderthals, super smart Neanderthals, controlling the world from like an underground home. I don't think that's true. Now, there aren't a lot of people that know of Glenn Keeley. There are even fewer that believe in his ideas as a literal truth. But, of course, the ones that did, I mean, they, they thought that I was like, working with the New World Order. And uh, a few months after Glenn Keeley died, one of them emailed me, and they emailed me with a bunch of accusations uh, that, you know, I, are, you must be happy now that Glenn's dead. Who are you working with? We've had our eye on you. And uh, I, I wrote back, and surprisingly, I was able to convey to the person that if I was a secret agent, if I was working with the NWO, then why wasn't the book, why didn't the book come out through a publishing house, you know? But the point is that everyone's on edge, and that's what I was saying earlier. Now, it's not just the conspiracy theorist who's on edge. It's not just the cult group or the religious organization and when, when I say cult group, I don't, I don't even mean that in a derogatory sense. It's not only these alcoves of people who are on edge. It's 
the mainstream, it's your average person is becoming more and more paranoid over the last few years. And it's resulting in this acting out, this, uh, you know, they, they want anything for relief, even if it means the death of millions of people. Now, one more anecdote about me being accused of being an agent that spawned from my writing and my editing work. A few years ago, I purchased and read a history book that was independently published. How would I characterize it? Sort of an alternate history of America, let's say. Nothing too kooky. I mean, no uh, underground Neanderthals in this book. But it was a alternate history book. Lots of things along the lines of this is what the mainstream says about whatever, the Civil War or the Great Depression. But here are these sources here that sort of cast a different light on certain things. And it was a pretty good book. It definitely presented a lot of history and a lot of historical documents that I wasn't aware of. But there is a problem. There was a typo or two on average on every single page. I think on average it was something like 1.5 typos per page. So there were hundreds of typos. And when I got done reading the book... I contacted the author and I said, hey, I just read your book. I thought it was really excellent. I'm an editor. I'm a proofreader. I do copywriting. Would you like me? And while I was reading your book, I made notations of where the typos were. Would you like me to edit your book for you? Uh, Or I could just give you a list of what the typos are. And uh, the author reacted by accusing me of being a secret agent, uh, trying to discredit his work. I mean, this is where people are at. And this, I mean, it's, it was pretty shocking. I was shocked at the time. If, if, um, if something like this were to happen to me again today in 2022, I would not be shocked. Because the level of collective and individual paranoia is just um, so high. But at the time, and this was, I don't know, was it 2018, 2017, something like that. uh, Yeah, this guy thought that I was somehow trying to discredit him. Now, why fixing obvious typos? And some of the typos were like, um, your math is wrong. Like the the guy was like doing basic math at one point and did the math wrong. I think at another point, he didn't have like the letters of a certain list in order. Like he said, well, here are the concerns. A, blah, blah, blah. B, blah, blah, blah. D, blah, blah, blah. F, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, your alphabet's out of order on these bullet points. Things like that. His response also said that well, have you ever considered that maybe I misspelled things to keep the reader on his toes? Like if incorrectly spelled words would like jog someone's mind to think differently or something. Now, 
I'm someone who did a lot of classes and did a lot of independent reading on what is called modernist literature. So I know about James Joyce and Virginia Woolf and all these other more avant-garde authors who you know, have no qualms about spelling things wrong for effect. But this guy wrote a history book. And um, whatever the psychological effects would be, the primary one would be, well, this author isn't very careful, so why should I trust his conclusions, which are outside of the mainstream, if he can't even spell words right? I mean, at one point he spelled the name of a president incorrectly. He spelled Barack in Barack Obama. He spelled Barack incorrectly. Now, what kind of like psychological effect to his advantage is that supposed to be? But this is where people are, are at. You, um, what you're doing, what I was doing, and what I would caution you ab- about doing is um, you're effectively kicking out one of the psychological supports, one of the few psychological supports that some people have when you call into question who or what they believe in, whether that's a typo-ridden history book that a guy in his 60s, I think, wrote, or whether it's telling someone, hey, you know, um, there are flaws in Nietzsche. Certain people, if you, if you catch them in the wrong mood, and that mood is expanding, they take it as a personal threat. They're often in situations where they need to hold fast to something because the world's crazy and it's getting crazier and they don't want to know if the work that they've just produced, that they've spent a lot of effort producing, has a bunch of typos in it. They don't want to know if one of the books that they've based their worldview around is erroneous, is objectively erroneous. Uh, which is something else that has happened to me recently that certain people contact me and they say such and such book or such and such series of works, this is the real truth, this is the real history of blah, blah, blah. And um, a lot of these fantastical texts that they put forth are are objectively unreliable, to say the least. And no matter how nice you or I am, am about saying, oh, well, that's not for me, or oh, well, uh, yeah, the reason I don't subscribe to this philosophy or that way of looking at things is because of this. No matter how nice you try to be about it, most people take it as a threat. So especially recently, especially in the last month, and it's my recommendation to others, but especially recently and currently, whatever kid gloves you are used to handling individually unique. Uh, whatever kid gloves you are used to handling uh, unique individuals, exceptional individuals with, uh, you need to like put on an extra set of gloves, put on an extra layer or three of kid gloves to handle them or just um, do not contradict them. Just, just walk away. Just, uh, you know, like I, like I said, what you have control over is not changing their mind. You're, you're not going to change their mind.
Like I, I would not, the, you know, the, the circumstances in which I would try to change someone's mind, even if you can see it really clearly, which is so- something else I've experienced in the last two years. I've come in contact with people who I see what they're saying. I see uh, what they're going for. And I'm, I'm older than them. I, I've read more than them. And I can, see, I can see exactly where they're going wrong. And I can see, no, you, you, need, to, you need to think about it this way. You're, you're, you're going wrong. You don't really even mean that. You think you mean it, but you don't. And th- there's just no way to get through to people. It's however hard it was three years ago, it's even more, it's even harder now. And I would just recommend whatever influence I have on, over the people of, of my audience, you need to do what's right and what's easiest for you and those around you. Usually that means making money in some respect or sort of solidifying your situation. And it's a huge risk to try to help other people. In regards to the internet in particular, just to give an example so I'm not speaking so abstractly, uh, so many people who are into Ted Kaczynski and so many people who are something I used to see a lot of, I don't know where it went, this Ann Prim gang, where, I mean, it's, 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 a lot, it's a lot like Jacques Ellul, it's a lot like some of what I talk about, that they see that the modern world, the technological society, although they don't call it that because they haven't read Ellul, but they see that there's problems in this whole system and we need to go back to nature or return to monk, return to monkey and all this stuff. And um, a year or two ago, I would I would see people posting this, and at first it's it's kind of funny, but but then I get the I get the sense that they're they're psychologically invested in this argument, and yet I can I can tell that it's not gonna nothing's gonna nothing's gonna come of it, uh, not in a collective sense, but not for them personally, and they're just they're pretending to care about it. And for, for all I've said about Jacques Ellul and the problems of the modern world and escalating artificiality, okay, I, I do not want to live in the woods. I do not want to literally live in the woods. Now, I live in a very rustic area here in Siberia, but I do not want to like live in a treehouse and like not have electricity. It's, it's not going to happen. I know I don't really want to do that. Now, if society really does fall apart, I would say that, yeah, human beings can live without it. That's just a statement of, of fact. The human beings have and can live without the science and the technology. But, like, me personally, do I want to do that? No. But, um, you know, a, a year or two ago, I would get into these discussions sometimes I won't quite say they were arguments with these um, Ann Prim people. And uh, no, they think this is what's going to happen. They're, they're going to learn how to hunt and they're going to learn how to make a treehouse or something. And, um, you know, I, I, I check back in with the person six months later. And it's like, oh, yeah, I've moved to L.A. You know, oh, yeah, I'm living in London still. Yeah, you're not going to fucking do shit. Now, for everyone who does, like if someone does like live off grid, that's fucking cool as hell. But I can tell that these other people who were arguing, who treated it like a meme, but were serious about memes. 
uh, that treated Ted Kaczynski and Ann Primgang and all this stuff, uh, I, I knew they weren't serious. And I knew they, they didn't really want it. They just liked saying that they wanted it. And that's a lot, just for a brief digression, that's a lot like what communism is. No one really wants to live like a real honest communist, except for a few people who are in communes. I will give them that. If you're living in a commune, if you're one of the very few people in the last 200 years who have actually found a way to live in a commune and you call yourself a communist, yeah, makes sense. But for most people that call themselves communists, they just like the idea of calling themselves communists. They just like the idea. And people like the idea of the Unabomber and they like the idea of return to monkey and they like the idea of, yeah, I'm learning how to do this. All it amounts to is that they're still living in an, in an, in an apartment somewhere. They're still living completely artificially, except they've watched a YouTube video or two about how to, I don't know, how to make like cherry jelly or apple jam. So once a year, at, at most, at most what it's going to result in is once a year for Christmas, you give out like apple jelly or uh, strawberry jam that you've made, that it's homemade. Now, taking nothing away from that, that's cool. But yeah, you're living in the technological society Every fucking time that you pretended to be in Prim Gang or that you said that you, you, you know, you're saying the Unabomber was right as you prepare to buy a new iPhone. You say that the Unabomber was right as you complain that the government doesn't give you a larger stimulus check. So um, people should take stock of like what they realistically think they want to do. That's not to say don't read Ted Kaczynski. That's not to say that just forget all of it. And uh, that's not even to just end the conversation on the criticism of people who think that their ideologies are actually feasible or that they would even really want them. The point I'm making is that at any given time, a lot of people really need to believe in something, even if it doesn't make sense. They need to think that it makes sense, whether it's anarcho-primitivism or whether it's the belief that we're secretly controlled by underground Neanderthals or the belief that an alternate history book is going to change the world or the belief that if I just go on my radio show and explain how you can hook up a hose to a, a water pipe in your bathroom, then people, then everyone listening will do that, or else they wouldn't tune in. If they're tuning in next week, they must have done it. I mean, I've expressed how important it is. Why are you still listening if you haven't done it? What I am noticing, what I have noticed in the last month and a half, is that people are holding ever faster to ideas that they've gotten in their head. And do not get in the way. Because what you're basically doing is that... uh, You're trying to kick out the support beams that are holding up these people's worlds. And you do not want to be around if they collapse or if they sense that you're threatening that. (music) 
Oh, now something else I wanted to talk about in regards to the meme about remakes and repetition. My notes are all out of order. Uh, I wanted to talk about how there's this criticism of the remakes of the movies. But really, if you go back to more authentic, less artificial culture, the folk tales and the culture heroes of any given time and place, those stories were told and retold constantly. So if Spider-Man is a modern myth, then it makes sense to continually retell the Spider-Man story the same way that the ancient Greeks would want to hear over and over and over again about the adventures of Theseus or Hercules. So this critique of Hollywood can't do anything but remakes, the problem is consumption. The problem is the way the stories need to be resold. Yeah, I guess capitalism comes into this some. And the real problem is that the people in charge of the culture, the culture producers, are not in sync with the audience. They are not pleasing the audience as much as usually, as much as they are trying to lead the audience now. And that is why most of the remakes fall flat. Whereas, I mean, if you look back, all but two of Shakespeare's plays were unoriginal. Meaning the stories or the histories were already out there. And Shakespeare just did his remake of it. Nothing wrong with that. Now, how many times has the Faust tale been told? It was a basically folk tale. Then Christopher Marlowe did a play. It remained a play that was reperformed and reperformed and a folktale of sorts. And then Johann Goethe in the 1800s did his Faust. I mean, is, is there a problem there? That's one of the greatest works of any sort ever, Goethe's Faust. It's a remake. It's a remake of a remake. So the problem isn't remakes. The problem is who's producing it and how they are not in sync with the culture. Goethe was in sync with 19th century Germany. Okay? Christopher Marlowe was in sync with England of his time. Shakespeare was obviously in sync with his culture. Now also, you need to think about how, just as a counterpoint to refer to, did you know that the Greek tragedies were only performed once? Did you know that Sophocles plays in ancient Greece... Each individual play was only performed once. These plays, along with Aeschylus's and uh, Euripides and whatever other ones, they were performed once, okay? They were performed one time. They were performed for competitions. And we can see the, like, uh, you know, who got first place and whatnot. So they were written down. And they're these, you know, literary masterpieces now. But they were written as scripts to be performed one time. That shows you how, in an ancient culture, where media isn't everywhere, when the cultural landscape is comparatively sparse, shows you that the audience was expected and ostensibly could really soak in and remember one performance. Now, a lot of those plays, I, th I would think all of them, come from the ancient Greek myths. So these were 
stories that the public already knew. And what Aeschylus or Sophocles was doing was remaking them. They're remakes. The problem isn't doing a remake. The whole concept of originality is significantly a modern conceit. The extension of copyright laws certainly plays into this because you have to keep coming up with original culture, which becomes increasingly artificial and threatens to be divorced from the actual audience because you're creating original creations that don't really resonate as much as pre-established cultural heroes did. So the problem isn't the remake. The problem is that the culture creators do not have their pulse on the people. But we're in a totally different place now where everything is recorded and everything can be easily played back. Uh, I was listening to something the other day where someone was talking about how, uh, yeah, when, when a TV show was shown in, in the 80s, you know, most people didn't have VCRs even. And for those that did, most of the time you weren't like recording everything that you, you watched. So if you saw something on TV, you couldn't like pause and replay it and analyze details. And the people that produced the shows didn't expect the audience to be able to do that. But now everything is analyzed and everything is overanalyzed and everything is replaying. And um, this goes into kind of why I'm not so big on Jean Baudrillard or many of those other postmodern philosophers. Not that I hate them or anything, but aren't you kind of sick of this like hyper everything, like hyper real and it's layers upon layers of artifice and... Uh, I mean, I heard about this the other day when I was listening to someone talk about repackaged nostalgia. And they were saying that the Britpop of the 90s was just warmed over 60s sensibilities. They said the obvious case would be Oasis emulating what the Beatles were. But even the way, apparently even the way Tony Blair did his campaign, you know, his idea of the new Britain kind of like referenced... I don't know, the optimism that supposedly was there in the 60s. The person talking about this was like, oh, but even the Beatles in the 60s, they were kind of doing nostalgia for, I don't know, the, the 1910s or, or something. And yet someone's experience, if they didn't know that, I mean, there are probably young people that didn't know that Oasis was referencing the Beatles in sensibility sometimes. Uh, so that was new to them. So now if, if a newer band emulates Oasis, that person from the 90s isn't going to get that. It's a, it's a reference of a reference. It's nostalgia for nostalgia. But the, the, original, the original product is no longer there. So the audience has nostalgia for something that they didn't know about in the first place or blah, blah, blah. And I, I'm just sick of, of, of all of this. Whatever, however the nostalgia and the hyper-real is being set down, however many layers it is, however many, you know, whether it's turtles all the way down, whether it's nostalgia all the way down, I mean, I'm just sick of all of it. And it's not that I want something wholly original. I just want something that is somewhat straightforward. Somewhat, at least somewhat. 
that's why I'm not big on uh, Jean Baudrillard because I just don't want to think about it. It just it just turns into a mess, and the next person can always add another layer of uh, hyper reality. Oh, there's this layer, but that's hyper real. That's reflecting something that's not real, and the reflection is now as good as the real and the only real. When blah, blah. it's like who, who fucking cares? I mean, all of this just speaks to me of a culture and a civilization that has outlived its sell-by date. That is, it's it's gone on too long. And um, John Lydon said this in whatever 1980 when he was on the Tom Snyder show that rock and roll has gone on too long. And he said that whatever it was, 43 years ago or something, he just said, you know, all of this, it's, it's gone on too long. And even the critiques, I mean, last episode, I talked about how this whole, um, the whole idea that the West is committing suicide. I mean, you can even trace this back to early 1900s, but certainly after world war two, you had this concept coming up that, the West is in decline, blah, blah, blah. So even the critique, even the critique of the system, even pointing out the decline is fucking tedious on some level. So I, w- I would rather talk about Batman, and that's what I'm going to try to try to talk about here. But first, I have to talk about some other stuff. Now, the question I would ask, and it's a rude question, it's a shocking, it's a question that may insult you, but here's the question I would ask. Do the people deserve this reprieve? If the pandemic is ending, do the people deserve it? And it's not up to me to judge that, obviously, but I will tell you that from what I've seen in the past almost two years, the most cruelty I have seen has not been from the government to the people in the form of restrictions. The most cruelty that I have seen in the last two years, unquestionably, has been from individuals to individuals, has been people who are inconsiderate or rude on some level, whether out of hate, greed, laziness, whatever, from person to person, the amounts of stress, crippling stress that I've seen people under, largely, mostly, have not been due to lockdowns. They have been due to how individuals have been treated by other individuals who are or were in some sense close to them. Especially, I have noticed it, between people who are ostensibly, supposedly, freedom-loving people, people who are dissidents against the restrictions, people who care about the overreach of government power, people who care about things like that, From what I've seen, as one of those people, 
the most cruelty has been between individuals, especially individuals who fancy themselves mental health experts or uh, relationship gurus or what have you. That's what I've seen. And I've seen it from men to women, from women to men, women, women, men, men. I've seen it in every way, in, within uh, romantic relationships, within families, within collective creative communities. This is what I've seen. And I say that as someone who was and still is um, opposed to most government overreach, who is, who was and is mostly opposed to what the government's doing. But the real strains that I've seen have been on the individual level, the personal level. And I do not see humanity, to say nothing of examining scientific data or making sure that we have reliable information, to say nothing of that, to say nothing of trying to learn from that, I have seen no interpersonal growth. I have seen a shocking lack of interpersonal learning. And what I'm really noticing a lot in the last month, which seems largely unremarked upon, is this increasing casualness with which people are basically wishing death upon large swaths of the population. Now, I would say the closest to the mainstream consciousness this ever got uh, was when Elon Musk retweeted that meme of the vaxxed person looking at the unvaxxed person, and they're both thinking, why aren't they dead yet? That was the closest to it, and yet that meme does not, which is a few months old now, does not really capture the more recent phenomenon that is becoming more prevalent that I've seen. Perhaps it's going to fade now if, if the restrictions, if this is the beginning of the end of the pandemic, perhaps this nastiness will not increase in the short term. But it's not just wondering why the other side are still alive. It's um, wishing that they were dead so that we could move on. Now, you see this in both directions, and you see it posted publicly. You see blue checks posting this. And I don't even, I don't even go on Twitter that much, okay? I'm not on Twitter. I just see sporadic things that people show me. And um, you see people who, who are vaccinated who say that, well, the unvaxxed just need to die off. Ha, 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 there's rising cases and most of the hospitalizations are unvaxxed. And they're happy about this. But on the other side, too, I have definitely seen quite a few instances of unvaxxed people saying, okay, well, the vaccine is going to kill off a ton of people. That's a good thing. That needs to happen. I'm glad that's happening. And... Uh, what I would say about the whole phenomenon is that this is not how a civilization can run. A culture cannot come together this way. Uh, a civilization cannot function this way. Now, obviously, we have had an increasingly dysfunctional civilization 
for quite a few decades now. And yet this, um, I mean, this is really, this is really something. When you have people openly wishing for the death for you know, millions of people to die, and yet this, this has gone mostly unremarked upon. Now, the, the closest thing I've found to someone recently talking about something like this was apparently uh, there is a poll, and it was a shock poll. So that, it's, it's unreliable. I, don't, I haven't looked into it deeply. I do not think that this poll is trustworthy, but this is a poll that came out from a mainstream source that said that the majority of Democrats would favor internment camps for the unvaccinated. Now, that's not quite wishing death on the unvaccinated, but it's, you know, kind of the same vein in a sense. And yeah, in certain countries, apparently there are camps. Apparently they are voluntary for the unvaxxed. And yet I've seen reports that when someone escapes, they are brought back. So how is that voluntary? I don't, I don't know. And they're internment camps. They're not death camps. But um, the point I'm making is that we are not remarking upon this nearly as much as I think a healthy society should. I have seen quite a lot of mainstream news spots that shame an, an individual pundit or celebrity when they're happy that another pundit or celebrity got COVID. But how much worse is it? It's a lot worse when you have people not just happy that someone got COVID, but you're, you're wishing for the death of millions of people and you're doing it openly. And um, this is not remarked upon. I don't know if it's because the monstrosity of it is too big to fit into people's minds or uh, if it's just too hot to, for, to put on the news or what. But it, it, it really represents the last shred of morality just slipping away. And the last time I felt this way that there's something, there's a huge indicator going on that is being unremarked upon. The last time I felt this way was uh, spring of 2020. And it's, it's how I got back into Andy Warhol. I always, I liked Andy Warhol when I was a teenager. I always thought he was neat, but I got back into him, into researching him. And the, the Warhol Christian book came shortly afterwards because of spring 2020, when I started hearing about kids not going to school, kids being in lockdown, so-called lockdown, kids being at home for months on end not being able to see their friends. That reminded me of Andy Warhol's childhood because Andy Warhol had a condition for a few years where he had to be home for the most part. He couldn't go to school. He couldn't go out much. He couldn't be in a social atmosphere or it would trigger like a fever and hives and blotches and anxiety. So he had that condition for, for a few years, and what he did during those years is um, he was at home and he was looking at comic books and he was doing little activities and art projects and looking at movie star magazines and listening to the radio. 
and being with his mom and sleeping with his mom, but that's a different story. So what kids in spring of 2020 were going through reminded me instantly of what Warhol's childhood was like for a few years. And what Warhol went through there with the, with the disease that he had, they called that colloquially St. Vitus dance. I think it's actually like rheumatic cholera or something. I, I don't remember exactly. They Often people will point to that period of Warhol's childhood and say, that's when he became Andy Warhol. That's when Andrew Warhol became Andy Warhol. That's when the sensibility was established. That's what changed him into this weird guy, this weird creative guy, this shy person who played up his shyness thenceforth because he went through this sickness, this period of uh, self-imposed quarantine in a sense. And that's what made him fucked up. It made him in a sense, a great artist. It's responsible for the, the hundreds of millions of dollars that he earned in his lifetime. But it also really fucked him up. And the kids going through all of that stuff in the last few years, uh, not being able to see their friends for weeks on end or months on end for some kids, they're not going to come out of this like creative geniuses. They're going to come out of this much more scared, much more skittish because they don't know what's going to trigger some sort of episode or some sort of sickness, which is what happened with Andy Warhol. They tried to get him to go back to school too soon and seeing a lot of kids being in a classroom, it made him relapse into a fever and he had to go back into quote unquote lockdown because it was too soon, which is the equivalent of, oh, they opened up too soon. Got to go back into lockdown. Well, that's what Warhol had to do. So these these kids, uh, the last few years, they're they're being low key traumatized. I mean, we all have been, but it's it's obviously especially worse for kids. And um, during spring of 2020, I did not see many people really say that they recognized the problem that the kids were going were having and were going to have. And I also, I saw um, a lot of people just say, well, I mean, this is, it's sad for the kids, but this is what, what's going to happen. And um, I, I've never been a person to really like, quote unquote, think of the children. You know, I'm, I've, I, I'm not, I, I like kids. I like uh, seeing little kids. I like joking around with kids, but I've never been like someone who immediately thinks of the, the the children. I'm, I'm, I'm not. There are a lot of people out there who, uh, they are, you know, self-described caregivers and, you know, they're always thinking about what to do about the children and what should the children do and how will such and such affect the children if they don't have free lunch and at school and if they don't have any daycare or whatever they need. And I've just never, uh, I've never really cared much about kids in that sense. And yet in spring of 2020, it instantly hit me that what is happening here is it's going to create a sort of Warholian sensibility in every kid almost because of the antisocial module of life that they're being put through. 
And I instantly recognize it. And I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say as a proclamation, oh, well, this has ruined their life. I'm, I'm not saying that, but it's going to give them severe problems and challenges. And really the only other person that I saw who seems to have immediately recognized this, I'm sure there are others, but the only one on the, on the world stage that I know of was Klaus Schwab, who in the book that he co-authored that came out in, I think, June 2020, the Great Reset book, COVID-19 and, and the Great Reset, I think it's called, he seems to have immediately recognized the mental health challenges, to say the least, that this is going to have, that this is going to put kids through. And, you know, that his book came out there in, June, I think, June of 2020. So it was written in just a few months. And um, he seems to have gotten it. And now, you know, in, in the last two years, you know, here and there, it, it has popped up that, well, this is really going to do a number on kids. This is going to affect their development in all sorts of ways, not just in terms of like what education did they get or not get, but in terms of how is it going to affect their personalities? How is it going to affect their outlook on life? How is it going to affect... Uh, what their comfort zone is. And you compare it to, to Andy Warhol, who uh, was a very shy, antisocial person in a lot of ways. And then even after his childhood, I mean, there's the whole question of whether he had autism or not. And I agree with Blake Gopnik that Warhol did not really have autism, but Warhol played up his shyness and his awkwardness as a persona. But I would also add he did it as a crutch because it, because it became easier. It's like um, he doesn't have to pretend to be shy, but isn't it easier just to be shy and not make an effort? Because he was, com he was more comfortable shy. He was sort of in a, in a paradoxical sense. He was comfortable being awkward. He didn't want to try to be smooth when he was in public. So you can use uh, the awkwardness sort of as a crutch. And I'm not saying that you know, the, the, the personality disorders that may result from COVID-19 lockdowns will be a crutch for kids going forward. But I'm talking about what the comfort zone is. And Warhol's comfort zone was to be shy and awkward. Uh, I think probably on some level, even the, even the anxiety that he felt, he was, he was comfortable feeling that anxiety. And um, I believe that certainly kids growing up in, in this time, having gone through the last few years, and who knows if it's going to, how much it's going to continue, you know, they, they will have learned fear. They will have learned awkward social interactions with people with masks over their face. They, they will have learned awkwardness. They will have internalized awkwardness. It's going to be a, a, a huge challenge for them, and I, I don't think, I don't think even yet the mainstream has recognized or brought attention to just how, just how much this will have negatively affected children. But I, I recognized it because of the Warhol parallel, and um, the other day I heard a clip on the radio of a girl in the UK, who I guess she was interviewed on um, one of the shows over there, and she broke down in tears crying about 
um, how being jerked around by uh, the, the lockdowns, we're, we're open, we're not open, you're going to be able to go do this thing, now you're not. How just living through this in the last few years, I don't know how old the girl was, maybe like 12 years old, and she, she was just breaking down in tears, and you could tell the immense amount of low-level trauma that this child has been under for for two years. And the whole time, she's been helicoptered over by uh, this and that teacher and this and this and that counselor and this and that public health official. And uh, I, I have not heard any of them. I have not heard much, if anything, from those sorts of people talking about the trauma that not not the disease, but the precautions against the disease have put kids through. And I don't know if, again, it's because the question of it and what has happened is just so insidiously monstrous, just so, so huge that so much damage on a psychological level has been done. I don't know if just they, they cannot... They cannot even begin to think about that because it's so huge. And likewise, I don't know if this reluctance to talk about how more and more people are wanting large portions of the population just to die. I don't know if the lack of coverage is, again, because it's just uh, it's just too big of a question. It's, it's just too monstrous of a topic. I mean, we, we can talk about individual crimes, we can talk about that, but we can't talk about this incredible, in the true meaning of the word incredible, unbelievably inhuman wish that is just being casually thrown out by anyone. I'm not talking about the elite, I'm talking about everyday people. To just put it out there that, yeah, well, uh, the unvaxxed just, just need to die. Or well, the vaxxed, uh, it would be good if the if the vax uh, takes care of them as soon as possible. I'm looking. People have said I'm looking forward to the day they've said when all of the vaxxed are just gone. And the people that say these sorts of things, there's an implicit understanding that well, they deserved it. And I, I look at all of that, and I, I I once again have to wonder: do do we deserve a better world? Uh, do we really deserve it? In a, in a collective sense, do we? And in an individual sense, I mean, each individual has to handle their situation as well as they can. But when you let yourself go this way and call for, like, mass murder, I, I don't really know how we all get along afterwards after that. But now, um, let's talk about something more fun. Let's talk about Batman. I've just digested an actual spoonful of honey because I've never, I haven't talked this much in a long time. Uh, I live isolated in a hut in uh, northern Siberia 
and uh, I don't see people every day even. So my throat is really going and the, the snowmobile races are going to start soon and I haven't even gotten to what I wanted to talk about. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about, I'm going to run through the notes that I made uh, that are just about Batman. And the, the first thing I want to say is that, yeah, even talking about Batman, even an adult talking about Batman is, it's, uh, it's kind of old hat, but where did this start? Why do adults like children's culture? Now, in a major way, it did start with the 1989 Batman movie. That is the first movie of a children's property that a lot of adults went to see. Now, it's not the first adult Batman story. I think Frank Miller's stories in the mid-80s were more adult. But it was certainly calculated and it was certainly successful that they made this Batman movie a little edgy. I think, I don't know, it wasn't R, but it was PG-13. And I remember being a kid and you couldn't, uh, not every kid got to see it. You know, we were a little too young. Not everybody got to see it. But um, then you go, I mean, because it used to be... Adults did not want to see um, children's entertainment. And now, you know, I know of men in their 60s who uh, the biggest thing in their life is CW shows based on comic books. So how do we get here? How do we get to where grown men wanted to see children's movies or action movies or, or, or anything? I mean, that's something that you see when you're, it used to be, that's something you see when you're in your 20s. And then afterwards, you're an adult. But uh, I would point to the Lord of the Rings movies because a lot of older fans went to the movies because of those. But I think, I think it really started the trend. A real, a real marker of the trend was the 89 Batman movie. But I, I know people who, um, you know, they're, they're older people. And the, the only movies that they've seen in, in 30 years... Or the Lord of the Rings movies and The Hobbit. The only movies that they went to the theater to see. But uh, we're in, now we're in a place where you know, everyone's just consuming entertainment and there is no age range for entertainment. And you've got 60-year-old men talking about the Batwoman TV show. But um, okay, let's go into my notes about Batman. I have down... Collective insanity of the Gotham citizens. Yeah, that's, we need to understand that the pool of humanity in Gotham City and what that represents, whether it's every urban area or the technological society itself, it, it's filled with these basically drones. Now, yeah, they, everybody has an individual name, but there, there is a thing called group psychology. And no matter how individual you are, Groups behave under their own psychology. They just do. Overall, it works out that way. And that's what the Gotham City's, uh, that's what Gotham City's people represent. And I have down, they're insane for staying there. Yes. Yeah, that, that's, that idea comes up sometimes in the comic books, uh, probably in the, the cartoons sometimes too, that you've got to be crazy to live in Gotham City and uh, that reminds me of a part in the movie My Dinner with Andre where uh, the two guys are talking about, they, they live in, if you've never seen the movie, it's about two guys that live in New York City in the 70s. I think the movie came out in 1980. 
and there's a part in it where uh, one of the guys talks about how people want to li- to leave the city because they hate it because it's crazy because it's inhuman, but they never do. And I'll, uh, he says, And when I met him at Findhorn, he said to me, where are you from? And I said, New York. He said, ah, New York. Yes, that's a very interesting place. Do you know a lot of New Yorkers who keep talking about the fact that they want to leave but never do? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, why do you think they don't leave? I gave him different banal theories. He said, oh, I don't think it's that way at all. He said, I think that New York is the new model for the new concentration camp, where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves, and the inmates are the guards, and they have this pride in this thing they've built. They've built their own prison, and so they exist in a state of schizophrenia, where they are both guards and prisoners, and as a result, they no longer have, having been lobotomized, the capacity to leave the prison they've made or to even see it as a prison. And then he went into his pocket and he took out a seed for a tree and he said, this is a pine tree. He put it in my hand and he said, escape before it's too late. And that's a lot like uh, what the people that live in Gotham City go through. And it's also a lot like what these people who um, criticize modern society do when they hold up the Unabomber or... Uh, anarcho-primitivism. Yeah, you're always talking about it. Why don't you do it? They never do. At least, hey, at least Ted Kaczynski did it. Uh, at least a few other people that I know of live off-grid. I mean, I live in a hut in northern Siberia, but I have electricity and internet, and also I'm not off-grid. But that's the parallel, too, where, uh, I mean, how, how bad does it have to get, you know? And I, I already went into this somewhat, but the lives that the Gothamites go through, they're lives of constant crisis. And what do we see in the modern world? What, do we, what have we gone through? Constant crisis. There's always a crisis. And the people in charge, they like this idea, whether they want to get the most out of every crisis, but they also like the idea of turning every problem into a crisis. And um, whatever problem, it's a crisis. There's the homeless crisis, the education crisis. Now, I, I have down not just problems and challenges of life, but crises, yeah, everything, everything is blown up by the media for maximum psychological impact. And in the world of Batman, the constant crises have to happen because there's a new issue of the comic book coming out this week. We need a new villain. There's a new movie coming out. We've got to have something happen in it. So the villain of the week becomes the crisis of the year in the real world. And, okay, I have down, is Batman insane? If he is, his insanity is a unique individual insanity. Yes. So you have to, to remember um, Aldous Huxley's line, Bruce Wayne's individual insanity, his unique craziness, protects and prevents him from becoming just another run-of-the-mill rich guy in Gotham City. Now, how many rich guys do you see in some of the Batman stories that you know they're, they're held hostage the Riddler or the Penguin holds some wealthy person hostage. That doesn't happen to Bruce Wayne. Or if it happens to Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne can get out of it because Bruce Wayne has his individual insanity to, in a sense, protect him and to get him out. Now, it's worth saying also that Bruce Wayne's miserable. Bruce Wayne is not happy. Uh, The happiest Batman is the 1960s Batman. But even the 1960s Batman, it's not as though he's really happy. He's just not moping around and brooding. Uh, you know, almost every other iteration of Bruce Wayne and of Batman, 
they're, they're not happy. So next note, the classic rogues also have individual insanities, each of them primordial, symbolic, mythic, and psychologically profound. Unlike Spider-Man's rogues, who are mostly just animal costumed people. Yeah, and this gets into something that I want to I want to talk about that Batman is profound in a way Spider-Man isn't. And we we have transitioned from the most popular superhero being Batman to the most popular superhero being Spider-Man. That has happened in the last, I don't know, 10 years. And what that represents, I think is a fall. It, it's a non-serious character for a non-serious society. Now, I'm not talking, I'm not saying that Spider-Man isn't fun or cool or I don't like Spider-Man. I like Spider-Man. I've bought and sold, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of Spider-Man comic books, and I like Spider-Man. He's a cool character, but he's not profound in the way Batman is profound. And Spider-Man's villains are not profound in the way that Batman's villains are profound. I mean... Batman's villains represent these archetypal concepts. Usually, there's the duality of Two-Face, everything that can be a dichotomy, everything that can be a 50-50 chance. You know, Two-Faced, the, the god Janus, Two-Faced Janus, who looks forward and he looks backwards at the same time. Two-Face is huge. What is the Joker? The, the, the Joker represents the archetypal jester, the clown, he represents insanity as well. He represents laughing in the face of the modern world. What does the Riddler represent? The, the Riddler represents all questioning. The Riddler represents all tests of wit. The, the Riddler represents everything from the Riddle of the Sphinx on up. Uh, so the Riddler represents the intellect. So we're, we're getting at huge concepts. What does the Scarecrow represent? Fear. You know, you, you compare that to, like, uh, the, the villains that Spider-Man has. What does the rhino represent? The, the rhino? Uh, the vulture? These, these guys, they're just costumed people. They're all the equivalent of the penguin. The odd one out that, of the major rogues that we have in Gotham City is the penguin. He's just a guy that looks like a penguin. Not to shit on him, but it's, that's not that profound. Well, that's virtually all of... Spider-Man's rogues gallery. Now, with the Green Goblin, does he represent a little more? Uh, maybe. But whatever the Goblin represents, it's not that archetypal. And then you get to the, the heroes themselves. For some reason, the Bat represents so much more. The way that the costume looks. Um, he fights for good, but Batman looks like a demon. Compare that to Spider-Man. Spider-Man's happy. Spider-Man has a cool primary color costume. It's fun. It's what people want to see. Maybe because their lives are harder now on average, but it's not exactly profound. I like Peter Parker. I like the, the, the guys that he fights, but um, they're not profound in the sense that all of the Batman characters, or almost all of them are. Uh, now, you, you think of Catwoman, and yeah, she's a costumed animal character, but she also represents some sort of path not taken by Bruce Wayne. If he hadn't taken the path he took, and she didn't take the path she took, they could have been together, blah, blah, blah. So I, I, re I recognize that not all of the rogues are super profound, 
but a hell of a lot of them are. And it's worth saying, too, that prior to Batman becoming the number one superhero, it was Superman. Superman was brightly colored and happy, but Superman was also profound. You have the Superman of Nietzsche and what that represents. You have the Superman of George Bernard Shaw and what that represents. The idea of Superman. I've seen his origin compared to Jesus. You can compare his origin to the baby Moses. There is something profound in Superman. And he's happy. So we went from the profundity and happiness of Superman to the tragedy but profundity that's in Batman. And now to the non-profundity but happiness of Spider-Man. And it's a cope. It's a coping strategy. Spider-Man, the rise of Spider-Man's popularity, superseding Batman, is a coping strategy on the mass psychological scale to redress the pressure of the 21st century. There are, there are precious few classic Spider-Man stories. The best Spider-Man story is Craven's Last Hunt. If Craven's Last Hunt was a Batman story, it probably would not even be in the top 10. But there are no other classic five-star Spider-Man stories. Um, when you look at the Batman comic books, there's Dark Knight Returns, Year One, The Killing Joke, The Long Halloween, Grant Morrison's Batman run, The Court of Owls by Scott Snyder. I hate Scott Snyder, but yes, The Court of Owls... People like it. There's Hush. I'm not a big fan of Batman Hush, but if Batman Hush was a Spider-Man story, people would say it's the second best Spider-Man story. That doesn't mean that there aren't classic moments in Spider-Man comic books. You know, the death of Gwen Stacy and a few other moments. But as far as like classic stories, there's really only Craven's Last Hunt, kind of. Because the character is not... The character does not lend itself to profundity the way Batman does. Next note that I have is, okay, here was really um, the catalyst for this entire episode. The only people getting anything out of Gotham City are the villains. The only people who are striving, the only people who live in Gotham City who see a way to strive and fulfill themselves psychologically are the villains. They want to do it. It makes sense for the villains to live in Gotham City if what the villains want to do is just go wild and wreak havoc. There is at least a way for the villains to have a good time and fulfill themselves psychologically if their plans were to work. But every time, and it's almost like um, Coitus Interruptus, when the Dark Knight swoops in to save the people, the Dark Knight prevents the villains from reaching their potential in their own um, terms. Within Gotham City, within the technological society, only the super criminals can really see a way to get off. And this is the equivalent of like the mega capitalists and the mega politicians of our world doing what they want to do. The system works for them. And they're happy in it. They can at least see a way to be happy or to find fulfillment. But on the other hand, no matter how many times 
Bruce Wayne foils their plots. He's not happy. Now, what this means within, within the Gotham City context, what this means is that the villains want to break the city. The villains want the city to collapse. They are working for collapse. What Batman is doing when he foils the villains' plots is he is preventing the collapse of the system. He is allowing the system to continue. He is allowing the city to be at least livable. Even though all of the Gothamites are crazy, miserable, even though it's, you know, they lurch from crisis to crisis, what Batman does is he prevents collapse. What the villains are trying to do is they're saying, hey, look, dumb fucks, get the fuck out of this system and make something else. Find something else. Go, leave, do something, set something else up because this city is fucking murderous and monstrous and inhuman and I'm going to show you just how inhuman it can be. And time and again, what does Bruce Wayne do? He just puts a band-aid on it. He says, nope, nope, we're going we're gonna to keep doing this even though everybody's miserable. And that, that's not to say, this is what I have in my notes, uh, that's not to say that the villains are the real good guys, okay? Uh, I'm not saying that. But the super criminals are the ones who can really thrive in the city or who can at least try to thrive and have a good time because Batman tends not to be happy and even the 60s Batman isn't exactly happy. But it's like, yeah, I said this already, but it's like coitus interruptus when Batman stops the supervillains from playing out their psychodramas on the stupid population. And uh, yeah, they're a stupid population because they're not leaving, because they're making no effort. They're, they're just staying there. But I, I hope, and this, um, what I just laid out there, I hope you can get something out of that. Just drop this information into your conversations with your parents and your professors, your clergymen, and whoever you're going out on a date with, and insist upon the explanatory power of this uh, comparison. That when you view Gotham City as a metaphor, then whatever this sick, uh, vicious, cyclic process is, it's akin to all these crises that we have that never break the system. The system wants the crises for some reason. And the system has its uh, Dark Knight Defender, which in real world terms uh, would be something like a bailout. People are always saying, why doesn't Bruce Wayne just use his real superpower, which is his money, to solve all the problems? Uh, very naive critics say that. Very naive critics say that. Uh, because in the real world, what do we have? We have lots of billionaire uh, philanthropists. But for some reason, no matter how much money they give, uh, the system just continues to become more anti-human. But on another scale, on a governmental scale, what do we have to continue propping up uh, not just the economic system, but the entire system? We have the bailouts. We have Keynesian economics. We have the magic money printer, where when the system looks like it's having problems, we, ju we just inject some relief. We just inject 
some help. We just give the people more welfare. I heard the other day that um, New York City, there's going to be spending more on the homeless than on education in New York City. And I'm not a big fan of spending money on education either, but I, I think that says something that New York City is, is, has allocated more money for homeless outreach than it has for education in their schools. So whatever the problem is, we can just uh, come up with the money and throw the money at it. And just th throwing a bunch of money at a problem is not going to fix the problem in the sense that it's not going to fix the root of the problem, but it's going to fix the problem temporarily. And that's what Batman does. Batman fixes the problems temporarily. This goes into Batman does not kill. Batman does not kill and the Gotham prison system and the Gotham mental health system doesn't do a good job of keeping the criminals locked up. So here again we see Batman doesn't solve the problem. He solves it temporarily. Just like all these economic crises and all the other crises too, um, they're solved temporarily. Uh, we, you know, we, we had a homeless crisis apparently in the 1980s, but oh, we've got a homeless crisis again. We had an economic crisis, you know, every 10 years. Just like, oh, we had an attack from the Joker. Now we've got another attack from the Joker. Now we wouldn't have these attacks if somehow Batman would stop the Joker for good or uh, Arkham Asylum would put the Joker away for good, but they, they don't solve the problem. For some reason, they don't want to solve the problem. Uh, just like the system that we're in, it doesn't seem to find a way to solve problems. It kind of likes these problems. The continuance of the problems justifies the growth of the system itself in some way. Now, how you um, wed that on to just the Gotham City context, I suppose you, you, you can say, well, there's so many super criminals now and they keep escaping. Um, rather than kill them or lock them up for good, uh, we don't just need one crime fighter. We need Batman and Robin. And now there's so many that we need Batman and Robin and Batgirl. And now we need Nightwing. And now we need another Batgirl. And now we need this person and that person to help fight crime. So I guess you could do some sort of metaphor like that, which represents the tools of the system on the surface to save the city. But what you're really doing is perpetuating the crises to continually reemerge. Now, it's worth saying, if you talk about Spider-Man like this, or you try to talk about Spider-Man like this, you, you can't do it. There's no profundity. You can't, because what does Spider-Man do? He swings through the city and has a good time, and he has some personal problems, but that's relatable, so relatable, don't we all? Uh, there's no big profundity. You can't look at Spider-Man's world and say, this is a microcosm or this could be something like a microcosm of the entire technological society itself. But you can do that with Batman. You can do that with Gotham City. Now, people have tried to, like, say Spider-Man represents, like, a spy, like he's a spider-man, and the web is like uh, the internet, like the interwebs, and he's like a spy that surfs through the interwebs, and he's got all this, uh, he can sneak around, and, and that that's a very thin, slight metaphor. Like, there's not much profundity to that. And what Peter Parker or any of the other spider characters do, it's not really akin to what 
a hacker does or someone on the internet. It's it's not a very it's not a very good metaphor. It doesn't work. But if you're going to try to have some sort of pseudo profound reading of the Spider-Man mythos, a good starting point would be that he's a spy that goes on the webs. But it's not that profound. There's not there's not much to it. Okay, I don't have much time left. Let's fucking go on with this. Um, yeah, Batman never fixes the problem. He never kills them or locks them up so they can't escape Arkham or prison. The police and jailers and mental health workers don't fix the problems either. Not fixing the problems for good ensures that future crises are inevitable. Future episodes will come. Yeah. If you killed the Joker, there wouldn't be another Joker episode. And we like Joker episodes. We like joke. We like movies with a Joker in it. You don't want to solve the problem. We want another Joker episode, the way the elites want another war. No one in now. Next note. No one in the city, in uh, parentheses, in the civilization, is happy. The only ones who seem eager and capable of possibly reaching some kind of personal glory are the villains who are individualistically insane if they can exact punishment on the insane collective. Yeah, I've talked about that too. Next note, the villains have grievances which are never addressed and are probably impossible to address. That should be redress, I think. They were let down by overseers and what they're effectively saying is that the system needs to break, yes. But Batman prevents the breakage of the system. Yeah, now I've seen some shallow readings of Batman by saying what he is is he's a rich guy who goes around beating up poor people who happen to be criminals. Yeah, you can read it that way, but that's pretty shallow. I like I like my metaphors more. I think my metaphors are a lot better than a simplistic Marxist interpretation. Grant Morrison actually put a Marxist interpretation of Batman in the mouth of Joe Chill, the criminal who shot Bruce Wayne's parents, but Grant Morrison is probably the first person to think of it that way. And Grant Morrison just put it in the mouth of a two-bit hood. Important two-bit hood, but still two-bit hood. But yeah, this idea that the villains have grievances because the system let them down. And they wanted to do something about it. Now, the system's letting virtually everybody down on some level. But the villains actually want to do something for their grievances to be redressed. Whether it's Victor Freeze, Mr. Freeze, who has a grievance because his wife is uh, encased in ice because she has a health problem and some corporation couldn't help her, so he wants to freeze the world. Or whether it's Scarecrow, who couldn't get any girls, or whether it's um, the Penguin, who was born a little freakishly, or whether it's the Riddler, the world doesn't reward his intelligence. Whether it's Two-Face that he couldn't uphold the law well enough and then a criminal disfigured him. They all have grievances. They all have pretty psychologically substantial grievances. They're not just criminals. They have grievances. And they're trying to break the system that aggrieved them. They're trying to break the system that one way or another did something to them. Now, it's worth pointing out that, yeah, 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 there's, there's individual Batman stories where 
one of the criminals is just going after a individual who did them wrong. But in most of the Batman stories, the criminals are trying to do something to the city itself. They might hold someone hostage that did them a personal wrong, but they're holding the entire bill, you know, the entire room hostage. They're holding the entire city hostage. And if they're successful, then it's a real black eye on the city. You know, if, if Batman doesn't save the day every single time, then a few losses would really add up to a systemic failure. Especially if, like, Mr. Freeze freezes the fucking city. It's not livable anymore. If the Scarecrow is able to hijack a blimp and dump fear gas over half the city, you, you get half the city turned into, like, pathologically insane, frightened people. It's unlivable. If the Joker poisons the water supply, it's unlivable. And this is what a lot of the Batman stories are. They want the system to break. They're trying to break the system. You know, much more than the, your Unabomber ever did. You know, they're going after the infrastructure itself. And Batman keeps preventing it. But no one likes the city. No one likes this. So what the supervillains are trying to do, they're trying to reach their, their potential by putting an end to this cycle. And um, Batman prevents it. That's not to say that I think Batman's the bad guy. You know, if I lived in Gotham City, and when I'm, wa when I'm watching a Batman cartoon, okay, people, it's not like I'm rooting for the bad guys. But I'm, I'm doing a reading, an overall reading, a metaphorical reading of the situation. Okay, next note, Batman himself is guilt-ridden, and modern comics often have him giving money to charity. Yeah, that's another thing. A lot of short-sighted critics, you know, they, they act like Bruce Wayne needs to give away all of his money. The comics I've read, the stories I've read, you know, there, there's the Wayne Foundation. Wayne's constantly giving, giving away money, just like uh, Bill Gates is, and just like uh, Elon Musk probably is. You know, all of these mega-wealthy people... They have their charities. They have their outreach. They're, they're, pro they're probably objectively helping more people than you and I ever would or could. Even someone like a Zuckerberg. Okay, I have no idea what his charity outreach is. Maybe half of it is a scam. But, you know, he's probably, odds are, he has helped people. But he's furthering the prolongation of the system at the same time. At the highest level, he's furthering the system itself. Well, at the lower levels, on the street level, he probably is helping people. The same way Bruce Wayne, with his foundations, with his outreach, seems to have helped a lot of individual lives of people that live in Gotham City. But overall, the system itself that causes these problems is prolongated because of Batman. Okay, I have down here also, Batman metaphorically and Bruce Wayne himself more literally also represents Keynesian economics or the Federal Reserve or the bailouts bailing out the system, kicking the can down the road, never fixing the heart of the problem. Yeah, yeah. And I have down here, capitalism, quote-unquote, is the problem, or capitalism is what's necessary to address the artificial system that creates it. Yeah, all this outreach, all these grants, all of the money printing, 
all of this, all of the stimulus checks, they address short term the problems. But the artificial system itself has made capitalism possible, has made Bruce Wayne billionaire possible, has made Batman possible. I have down, the city is a rat utopia experiment. Yeah, if you don't know what the rat utopia experiment is, look into that. When rats were given infinite food in close quarters, they bred like crazy, but then began acting in more deviant ways. These were experiments from the 1950s, I believe. And people have noted that uh, the rat utopia experiments seem like a microcosm of the city itself or modern society itself. And there is a sense that the longer Gotham City goes on, it breeds worse and worse criminals. Now, that's, uh, that sort of touches on another criticism that people have, that uh, this idea that the supervillains are created because of Batman, that if it wasn't for Batman, these other costumed freaks would not come about, that it's Batman's fault. But uh, no, it's the city that created Batman, and it's the city that created the Joker and Two-Face and the Penguin and the Riddler, they're not created because of Batman. They're created because of the city. And the city also creates you know, the other crime fighters, Batgirl and Nightwing, and the city is creating them. Batman is not creating them. Not in a literal sense, not in a narrative sense, not in a philosophical sense. Batman outstrips Superman in popularity when... Western population lost faith in itself, yes. But Superman was once profound, Nietzsche, Shaw, etc. Now we guess he's profound, but we don't care. Yeah, no one likes Superman. No one cares about Superman. We can sense that there's something profound there, some old-timey concept, but we don't really care. Superman was or could or should be happy. Yeah, and there's this profound joy in the dance of Zarathustra. Remember what Nietzsche wrote about Zarathustra and Superman, metaphorically Nietzsche's Superman, who is all about joy. He's going to show you how to dance. Uh, I forget what exactly Nietzsche wrote, but he said like, oh, I have this profound laughter at the world, this profound joy. There was the gay science, gay meaning happy, that Nietzsche wrote. He was all about happiness and joy, and that goes with what the Superman was supposed to be like, and that goes with what the superhero, Superman, is supposed to be like. Usually he's happy, but Western culture lost faith in itself, and that coincides with the rise of Batman. But then antidepressants were needed because we became terminally tragic, and then Spider-Man comes to the fore, this forced artificial happiness usually okay and i think this that's about all of my notes so i i hope you got something out of that i want to end this segment with uh, another quote from aldous huxley's brave new world revisited and it's about this theme of leaving the city and it touches on overpopulation which was a theme of the pre my previous episode about population reduction and uh, these elite people's 
preoccupation with it. But here's the quote from Aldous Huxley in Brave New World Revisited. Overpopulation and overorganization have produced the modern metropolis in which a fully human life of multiple personal relationships has become almost impossible. Keep in mind he's writing this over half a century ago. Think of how much bigger and more artificial the city has gotten since. Continuing. Therefore, if you wish to avoid the spiritual impoverishment of individuals and whole societies, leave metropolis and revive the small country community. Or alternately, humanize the metropolis by creating within its network of mechanical organization the urban equivalents of small country communities, which is impossible. Continuing, in which uh, individuals can meet and cooperate as complete persons, not as the mere embodiments of specialized functions, end quote. Now, yeah, I think that's uh, naive of Aldous Huxley to think that that's even possible, but that people can have those sorts of small town elements and be fully people within, within a city. But at least Aldous Huxley has that idea, and you can see how those ideas go along with what I was talking about with anarcho-primitivist people and living in a shack in the woods or whatever, these, these ideas. Now, it's worth pointing out that Charles Galton Darwin did not want that. Remember last episode, Charles Galton Darwin made all sorts of arguments about how, no, we need to herd people into the cities, and if people don't want to live into the cities, that's just too bad. We will make them live there anyway. So this shows us that at least the elite did disagree on some level. You know, this is Aldous Huxley, who was in Charles Galton Darwin's circle, writing at about the same time, and he's saying, uh, yes, you guys might want to leave the city if you want to be more fully human. Now, having said all that, I just wanted to end this by saying, I mean, I know people who live in New York City. I have friends who live in New York City. I do not communicate with them on a close enough basis to be able to vouch for their sanity or their mental health. But at the same time, I would not go so far as to say that they were probably insane or crazy or mentally ill. I will not take it upon myself to say that because I recognize my ignorance. And uh, yeah, maybe you can live in New York City and have a fulfilling life. Uh, Nick Gillespie, I'm internet friends with Nick Gillespie on some level, and Nick Gillespie lives in New York City. Nick seems like a nice guy. I don't know him that well. Like I said, I don't know him on a personal level. I think I would be. I think it would be fine for me to go to New York City and have lunch with Nick Gillespie or with some of the other people that I know in New York City. Not all of them. Some of them I would not want to uh, meet up with. But some of them I think that it would be fine. Uh, so um, what I'm saying is having shit on the city and urban environments for hours here, uh, yes, yeah, some people can probably have okay lives with it. I mean, possibly you can uh, have a family there and have them not turn out deranged. I'm not. I'm saying that somewhat facetiously, but not totally facetiously. Uh, it's it could be possible. Possibly you could live in London and do the same. But overall, 
we see the trajectory, we see the rising mental illness, especially in urban areas. We see all of the crises, especially in urban areas. So um, that's the end of what I wanted to say about all of that. My, my voice, my throat is fucking dead. I don't know how much I'm going to edit out. I have one more segment that I need to say, and I will do so after this break. Excuse me. Yo. Sorry, tell me, do you like Stephen King? King? Ooh, frightening stuff. How would you like to buy Dolores Claiborne for $7.95? The hardcover? Yeah, and you don't have to buy anything more. You got a deal. Introducing the Stephen King Library, now shockingly easy and inexpensive to acquire, starting with Dolores Claiborne for just $7.95. What comes to mind when I say Stephen King? Uh, psychos with hatchets. Demon dogs. Your collection will build into an entire gruesome library. Pet Cemetery, Misery, The Shining, Carrie. No commitment or minimum to buy. Cancel any time. What do you think of when I say Stephen King? <laughs> Dolores Claiborne is Classic King for only $7.95. Call now before it's too late. Nasty creatures you wouldn't believe. Warning, the following offer is for mature audiences only. Exciting, mysterious, intense, graphic, provocative, raw. This is no ordinary animation. This is the exotic, bizarre, and beautiful world of Japanese anime. And this is your invitation to enter with the modern classic, Akira. Critics say Akira makes Blade Runner look like Disney World. It's action-packed, the future of animation. Siskel and Ebert call it the video pick of the week. Akira is yours for only $4.95 with subscription when you order the best of Japanese animation collection series. With these state-of-the-art sci-fi classics, you will enter a world beyond imagination, a future out of control, and an experience you will never forget. Don't say we didn't warn you. Call 1-800-414-4422 now to order Akira for only $4.95 plus $3.79 shipping and handling. Future volumes are $19.95 plus shipping. Mature audiences only. Something else that I want to touch on is how when I was growing up in the 80s and the 90s, these ideas and these forewarnings of a sort that we would get from 1984 in particular, but also Brave New World, The sense I had when I was growing up from uh, the adults around me was that all of them would sort of like fight against any hint of creeping totalitarianism. And I'm not just talking about like English teachers or, you know, whoever else might discuss George Orwell in a classroom setting. I'm talking about even like other teachers or the local librarian or the guy who owns the hardware shop if something topical some bit of news was sort of going around in an everyday conversation uh, anything that kind of like had overtones of oh that's kind of like 1984 often instantly the sense i would get from the responses of the adults was oh we're not going to let anything like that happen here Oh, we're, we're not going to go along with, with anything that even slightly smells like totalitarianism of any kind. And uh, it's, these, it's these great works like Animal Farm and uh, Fahrenheit 451 that, that have sort of clued us in. And uh, 
Yeah, we, we wouldn't let that happen here. We wouldn't let communism. We wouldn't let fascism. We wouldn't let totalitarianism of any sort get a foothold. Now, I'm making a lot of this, but that, that's really the sense that I had. The sense that I had was that if anything did start to happen like this, then the adults, the pillars of the community, and the average people, they would probably, they would even like go around door to door and they would, they would make sure, okay, you're all right, I'm all right, I'm not with this, I know you're not with this. We're going to start a kind of underground, um, you know, to help people out that can't, uh, that are having a hard time. We're going to start a real grassroots, if not a resistance, then some sort of like grassroots uh, resilience community. But when you look at the way the world's gone in the last 10 years, it's extremely apparent that the adults of the previous generations, most of which are still alive, uh, the people that I'm talking about, either they did not really get any lessons from uh, these books that they read, these hallowed warnings, either they didn't get what the warnings were or they've just proven completely cowardly. When you look at internet censorship, and I know it's a private company, but when you look at everything from internet censorship to universities, publicly funded universities, taking classics out of the classroom or restricting speech, to say nothing of the totalitarian measures that uh, have been undertaking to fight COVID. The sense I had was that when I was a kid, if those adults knew what Australia was doing uh, to sort of like put people in internment camps that had COVID, and I, I'm, not, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying those are death camps. I'm, I'm not. They're not. But um, the sense I had was that those adults, when I was a kid, if they knew about that, they would mobilize instantly and the government would be sending the U.S. military to free those bases. And the people around me would be in touch with organizations that could send aid to the Australian people. That's the sense that I had. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but something like that, I think, would have been reasonable to expect growing up in, in the 80s. Not just because of the Soviet Union at the time, but because of the way the adults seem to hold not just um, the Constitution and American values in high regard, but the way that they viewed totalitarianism and the way they viewed the dystopian literatures. And I'm just continually struck that there really has not been much pushback like what what um what i'm really struck by is that uh, people really seem to have learned nothing from those books that it, it was all either a show or they forgot what they said they learned or something now i remember 2008 2009 i heard um i think her name is victoria jackson the the comedian from, I think she was on SNL 
and I think she was on the movie UHF. And I remember that she cited 1984 when uh, Barack Obama became president. Now, that's overblown. That's hyperbolic. But I remember she said, well, she, she has this very uh, distinctive voice, which my voice is too hoarse to imitate now. But she said something like, well, when I was growing up, we read 1984 and there was this, this big brother uh, in that book and nobody questioned him and his face was everywhere. And I, I, just see, I just see Barack Obama's face everywhere and it's like no one's allowed to question him. Now, yeah, I think that's hyperbolic. I think that a lot of people were questioning Barack Obama. I definitely would not equate Barack Obama with you know, the most uh, totalitarian. Not that I voted for, I didn't vote for anybody. I've never voted for a president or a presidential candidate. But um, I look back on that and it's like, hey, at least she was trying to put two and two together. At least she recognized that there is this thing called cult of personality. And to a much lesser degree, it was around George Bush, George W. Bush as well. Uh, there were the so-called Bush bots, which was a term used to describe people who just went along with whatever George Bush, George W. Bush said. But the, the cult of personality around Barack Obama was definitely, uh, you know, several orders of magnitude higher than that. And um, in its own way, in its own pocket, I think the cult of personality around Trump among his, among a lot of his supporters, was bigger than the cult of personality around Barack Obama. But my point in all of this is that that's that's really sad. That in terms of people using 1984, the the biggest example, the most high profile example I can think of is Victoria Jackson trying to put two sentences together and just sort of naively saying, hey, there's this thing called cult of personality. Maybe we should watch out for it. You know, that's, that's the closest. When we look back on humanity and what, what those books did during this time, it really seems like we don't really have much that we can cite. Now, did the publication of those books hasten the end of the Soviet Union? Did the publication of those books forestall totalitarianism during the 20th century? Did they produce actionable uh, results? I don't know. I'd like to think so. But certainly in the 21st century, I don't see... Those books, which I love and love to think about, I do not see them for all their worthiness, for all their merit. I do not see them producing a substantial counterweight to the totalitarian drift that in so many ways the world has fallen into. And again, all I can say is for individuals to uh, do the best they can for themselves and those around them to not be wedded to ideologies 
and to try not to go out of their way to harm other individuals who tend to be, for the most part, fellow travelers trying to get by. And also not to kick over hornet's nests when you don't need to. Or at least don't seek out people with, with problems. Why do you dislike rock and roll so it's much? It's dead, it's a disease, it's a plague, it's been going on for too long, it's history, it's vile. It's not achieving anything, it's just digression. They play rock and roll at airports. That's about as like advanced as it can possibly get. But there it's was a too limited. But there was a time when you didn't feel it that way. It is too much like a structure, a church. Yeah, but there was a, a religion, a, a farce. A time when you did not feel that way. What made you no, change? No, I've always felt this way. Even when you were with the, with the Sex Pistols? I wondered when you'd get round to that one. Yes, even then. Because the Sex Pistols was going to be the absolute end of rock and roll, which I thought it was. Unfortunately, the majority of the public, being the senile animals that they are, got that wrong. Too bad. All they want is an image, something flash. Where did the name the Sex Pistols come from? Who thought that name up? Some animal I can't remember. It doesn't matter. It's history. Well, I think history matters a little bit. When you say some animal, was this a member of the band that history made it? History does not matter. I mean, your program's called Tomorrow. There must be a reason behind that. Well, unless we remember our yesterdays, there will be no tomorrows. Oh, Getting back to public time. image.
Yep. Well, uh, do you want to know my actual response to all this? I mean, do you want to hear my actual response? Yes. See, my actual response, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm just trying to, to survive.